You are listening to Staff Meal, the world's first podcast about staff meals. Finally, a new episode of Staff Meal Podcast. My guest today is Rachel Signer, and we talk about her recently released book, You Had Me at Padnat. Um, our conversation will tackle questions about how to move on with your life when you're feeling stuck, how to make bigger than life decisions while life just like keeps happening at you, and also certainly about the state of things in gastronomy and the natural wine world. In her memoir, Rachel, uh, who is also the founder and publisher of the natural wine magazine Pipette, Uh, she reflects on her life in recent years. So the book starts with her escape from questionable gastro jobs and mediocre dates in Brooklyn with a wake plan to build a life in Paris fueled by the hope to co-own a wine bar on the Seine's right bank eventually someday. But then she went on a wine trip to Georgia where she accidentally um, yeah, falls in love uh, with an iconic Australian natural winemaker And Rachel eventually ends up living on a farm in Australia's Adelaide Hills, where she now makes her own natural wine, where she writes and where she raises her daughter. So, um, yeah, those are quite a lot of interesting topics um, to tackle. Um, her book, You Had Me at Patnat, is available, um, unfortunately, only via Amazon here in Europe. But... Um, Maybe that's okay for now to not go to your local tiny little bookstore because you simply don't have another chance if you want to read that book. Um, that is actually full of um, knowledge about natural wine, but also full of um, stories about yeah, basically how to move on with your life, how to make change happen, and how to eventually end up at a place uh, that makes you very happy. And yeah, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Rachel. So, hi Rachel, welcome to my show. It's good to see you. Hey, yeah, how are you, Mario? I'm good. It's been a while. Yeah, um, no. Mm -hmm. Tell me where you are right now, because like from my Berlin winter desk situation, that's at least a little bit exotic where you are currently. Yeah. Well, don't get too excited because it is spring here, but we're having the second year in a row of La Nina. Um, and so it's really cool and foggy most days. And there's been like unprecedented rainfall um, throughout Australia, which is excellent for the young vines that we have planted. Um, for mature vines, it means probably a bit more spraying. Um, and for me personally, it's a bit meh because I do like sunshine, but I think um, the past two years have really hardened me uh, and I've just gotten really used to, um, I think I complain less and I'm sort of more used to just whatever and taking it as it comes. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Let's talk a little bit about the wine. Like you, you have a lot of like wine stuff going on at the farm, right? So it also like got a little yeah. bit more intense in recent years. Yeah. Well, as you know, I make a very small amount of my own wine. Um, it's about twenty five hundred bottles, and I just did. So my fourth vintage was this year, and um, 
it's all made here on the farm with um, organic grapes from a few different locations and I do it all by hand so manually um, manually operated press like a very old-fashioned style mm -hmm. press buckets hands feet that sort of thing um, just grapes nothing ever added and then my husband has a much larger production with you know like an electric press and a forklift obviously and like normal winery things um, and we're, we're bottling and labeling right now, which is not super exciting, um, but has to be done. And we also have a lot of vineyard work at the moment. Uh, so in the past couple of years, we've planted 6,000 vines on the farm. Um, That's a lot. big, big hillsides. So it's a lot of like marching up and down the hillside with your pruning equipment and weeding um and yeah they're going to be bush vines i don't know if you've been to like southern france where bush vines are sort of more common um but they just sort of grow like big arms going up into the sky they're very impressive looking um when they're older and they don't so they're not trellised onto wires um so we are pruning them very specifically so that they will grow up to be bush vines which is interesting and lots of weeding we're just weeding all the time um yeah so i recently started using like a a, a whippersnipper it's called or a weed whacker <laughs> just like an electric thing that just chops down weeds <laughs> so i've been doing that for about an hour every day great You've been just like now also like in We Book, um, that is like the actual reason for our conversation today, very open about how winemaking and harvesting and being a winemaker is not as romantic as like many people um, think. And I'm happy to dig deeper into that later. But first of all, congratulations um, to your book that got like finally released, I believe in October. It's, yeah, just uh, about five weeks ago. Thank you so much. Of course, it was fun reading it. I have like, before we get into any topics, I, I have to ask you, how did you possibly get away with putting a word on the cover of a book that probably only 3% of the population know what it means? Your book is called oh, yeah. You Had Me at Pet Nuts, um, which I think is great, but how did like the publisher like possibly yeah. lead to that? Because it's some kind of, code word it could be a new virus yeah. it could be like a whatever phenomena that's actually a very astute question um i basically at some point titled my manuscript you had me at pet nat so that was probably right before it went to publishers it did have some previous very bad titles but um and they, you know, loved the manuscript and they signed me up and, you know, I kept waiting for them to come up with a different title because they said, we're not sure, pet nut is too obscure, pet nut is too obscure, right? Exactly what you just pointed out. And I'm like, sure, okay. And I was waiting for them to propose new titles and they just never came up with anything. <laughs> and that was totally um, surprising because it's very rare that the title an author proposes actually gets accepted and the the subtitle as well was mine so i thought that was kind of a cool victory i don't know if it's helping sales or hindering it but i feel like the title is really mine which is nice yeah, yeah. 
And I think it also like appeals to the reader who kind of wants to know about exactly that topic and it's like basically not expecting something else. So, so congratulations to, to Matt Victory on top of the publishing. Um, when I started reading the book, I kind of had like expectations of what would I get because mm. I mean, we had a couple of conversations about your idea to write the book. I also like remember at least one conversation when you have been already in the process of writing. And I also knew a little bit about like how your life evolved and changed in recent years. And then I started reading it and like after like the, the third chapter, I was like, wow, I ended up reading a love story to a certain extent. Is mm -hmm. this something you had planned early on or was it like more a process while where you're actually writing the book, you suddenly realize mm -hmm. how everything kind of like arranged around love and happened around love? Well, at some point I asked myself, is this going to be a guidebook or is this going to be a story? And I know myself and I know what I'm good at. And I really like telling personal stories. I always have, and I love reading personal stories. And I guess at some point I, I thought, there's no way for me to explain how I got from A to Z without talking about the relationship. And I do think my agent also said, look, you've got like two narrative arcs and I have this amazing agent and she's super into natural wine, which is like a total, that's a gem to find someone that actually already knew natural wine. She's like, you have this one narrative arc that's about natural wine and you're going from being a consumer to a producer, which is amazing. But you also have going from being kind of like a single, somewhat brokenhearted woman living in a city that's notorious for being a bad place for dating mm -hmm. to someone falling in love and, and actually also confronting what commitment means and so the job was then to kind of like have them work alongside each other um but yeah i i hope it was i hope it was interesting <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting and surprising and, and i think that might be also like the reason why it resonates with so many people so basically uh, for everyone who who doesn't know about yet or haven't read your book you you accidentally like met one of Australia's most iconic natural winemakers and you prior to that already fell in love with one of his wines um, <laughs> and, and now you're married and you're living in Australia and you have a little daughter she's three now already yeah she's turning two <laughs> yeah um, and again I also like want to talk more about this later but you just mentioned like how you basically escaped this very miserable place that was Brooklyn to you um, many years ago. And when I read this, so you described about how you were, were like working in, in gastronomy and then started working with wines. And you talk about like the whole industry a bit and how it is like to be in such a big city and the dating life. And I'm having the feeling that might resonate with a lot of like early 30s people even currently, especially with the pandemic, who feel like they are stuck in some kind of work they don't love, don't really see like a way out. Um, you, you kind of managed to find your way out, even if it led you to a different place than you originally thought about. Um, 
how did you achieve that? Like just in terms of advice, like what would you tell someone who works in a bar right now, 31, yeah. is just like fed up with everything, but it takes a lot of courage to escape that cycle. Yes, it does. I, I think you have to embrace risk, honestly, because I think in, in many ways, there were two years where I was totally living on the edge and taking lots of risks and not knowing what, just making choices kind of based on intuition and not knowing whether they were the right choices and hoping for the best. And I mean, you have to really believe that you're like your path is just heading somewhere and that it's going to make sense at some point. Um, and I mean, it was really hard. It, it was hard transitioning to like a new life in Australia, but um, change is hard and transitions are hard. But I would also say just, and it's so difficult to tell people this, but like you are, you are worth so much more than you know, and you are capable of so much more than you know. And the environment that you're in, whether it's New York City or Los Angeles or Berlin or London, um, you're, you're capable of so much more if you can get past your attachment to your current lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what it kind of took for me. And, and I think in the book, when I was moving to Paris and you kind of met me around that time as well, I was like sort of confronting this reality that like, I'm not going to change if I relocate to Paris. I'm still going to be probably living in very similar cycles, mm -hmm. maybe in a more exciting city and beautiful language and everything. But that was kind of the, um, the confrontation for me. So you do have to really embrace like drastic change and on the transitions that come with it, probably, I think. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you like to to realize that? I mean, this is certainly like a perspective, like in hindsight, like now that you know what it what it took to do that. Was there also like this feeling of I can do that and this is what I have to do while being in the process of moving on back then? I think um, in the book I talk about like you know I got to Paris and there was this heat wave and then. I sort of got totally wasted for like, I don't know, a week or two or three weeks straight. I was just kind of drinking and I was sort of falling apart. And I was like, okay, this is not really, I'm not progressing. Like <laughs> I'm not going forward here. I'm just maybe, I don't know, that mouse in a cage going around in circles. And um, I need to realize that. And like, why is that? And yeah, I mean, I think it's just at, at a certain point, you're like ready for something really, really different. Um, so I, I stumbled into something different. Like, and I also credit like my husband a lot with kind of nudging me hmm. and saying, the winemaking life could be for you or the the life on the farm mm. and it, it is a beautiful existence mm. growing your own food and and kind of pointing out to me again and again like you might find something here if you try it mm. and so i listened to him 
And um, I mean, he was always also really supportive of my ideas and my career and, and like turning um, one magazine, Tear, which I started with a couple of friends in New York into what I have now, which is Pipette. Mm -hmm. um, and that was also a product of kind of letting go of my New York life and letting go of the idea that I should be in, in a major global city. Because uh, I've basically published almost every single issue of Pipette, more or less from Australia. Like I was traveling, mm -hmm. but I was pretty much based here at that point. And um, yeah, so that was significant also, just realizing I didn't have to be in a major city. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, I mean, what you just described, and what's also like kind of like described in a very like beautiful way in the book, that even if you are on the road to something, you you totally have to be open, like to to change the tracks because like things start popping up on the left and on the right. And I think it's much more about like being open to any kind of change that might just jump at you from out of nowhere and and not be too fixated on that one next goal and like trying too hard to get there when like other things just happen at you. Um, I think that's a very, very important lesson like for, for many of us. Um, I want to go back to New York for a tiny little bit because you describe a bit like how work and gastronomy was. Also your husband is, I believe, still the co-owner of a farm to table restaurant in Australia. Um, obviously, you as a winemaker, but also as someone who works with wine, you have like some connection to, to restaurants and this whole industry. And there is this overall idea currently that this industry is broken and can't be fixed um, because people are always overworked. There is not enough money to pay staff in a proper way. We have this whole problem of the quality of food and food supply and what is ethical and what is not. Um, do you believe that this system, meaning like restaurants and gastronomy can be fixed or is that already too late? Um, I think a lot has changed since I was in New York and I think the pandemic has really um, put the system on the edge. Um, especially, I mean, people talk about these labor shortages and people who used to work in hospitality not wanting to go back. Uh, but I think that there are still a few visionary people out there. They're, they are rare. Mm. I, I worked for one of them. I think um, the place I worked in Brooklyn, which was part of the Andrew Tarlow group, was, was a, a place that is trying to be different and um, create, create people who really do care where things come from, where their food and their coffee and their wine and their tea come from, all of it. And I think that that, that was a fairly ethical environment in terms of labor. Um, I don't think that's most restaurants at all, but I, I feel, and you know, I haven't like left Australia in two years, but I feel sort of positive like I see a lot of small farms popping up. They seem to be finding customers, maybe that's through the farmer's market, but it seems like a lot of restaurants are buying things locally more. Mm. And it seems to have trickled out everywhere, but maybe labor is the big kind of question now, because now it's sort of accepted. Everybody 
in every suburb in the United States knows what farm to table is probably. Mm. Um, but do they care how much the kitchen workers are paid? Do they care if the server has health insurance? Mm. That's the next big hurdle. Um, in Europe, I think the labor context is totally different. And, um, but I, I, I do think there's definitely a lot of work to be done. Um, I mean, you asked about, you mentioned like, my husband's restaurant and um you know i've helped out occasionally in the um the sort of bottle shop part mm -hmm. the sort of wine bars tasting room but i think i think my husband's restaurant is amazing it is very um experimental in a lot of ways because it's trying to really create a link between the growing and the cooking and the consuming. Um, and it's it's difficult. It is difficult to do. It's it's a lot of juggling and asking people to be in several places at once and to care, asking people to care. But um, like I see it happening and it is possible. Uh, Relay in Copenhagen was another place like that. Sadly, it has closed, I think permanently. Um, but I think I think Relay was kind of a model for for what we are doing here, and hopefully, as the economy I guess kind of gets going again, there will be a way to continue supporting these projects. I think the problem was that they sort of depended. They are it's so difficult to finance. It's so expensive to grow vegetables, nice organic vegetables. Um, certified organic, that's another expense because there's paperwork and inspection involved. And then they relied on tourists to kind of pay the prices that they were charging. So when Copenhagen lost its tourism, they just couldn't stay open. So it kind of, somewhere, so it has to be some happy middle. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. Yeah, let's not lose hope on that. It would be, would be a shame if we, if we lose like enjoying- I love restaurants. I love like so many of my friends have beautiful restaurants and I love visiting them and I love spending time there like because I um, I don't know I, I didn't grow up with food being very special it was really mundane and I love like the luxury of um, you know someone who is specialized in, in cooking and all the care that goes into the produce and yeah I don't want them to go away Definitely not. <laughs> I believe they won't. <laughs> um, since you're currently drinking a, a glass of wine, first of all, what, what are you drinking? Yeah, um, so we, um, yeah, I think you kind of wanted to talk about like what's happening with natural wine. And in Australia, it feels like there are so many new labels appearing, which is really exciting. Um, so we had an event the other day, and this um, guy who is an intern at a winery in the Barossa, you know, I think as part of his internship, he made a little bit of wine there. Uh, Beautiful label. Red. I've just finished the last glass, but it's really good. So he calls it A-G-E-N, which, again, again, I don't know, he's Japanese. Um, and he makes it at a place called Small Fry, which has a beautiful, yeah. amazing vineyard with old, old, old vines in the Barossa Valley, which is just next to us, like an hour away. So I don't know what's in it, but some red grapes, it could be Morved and it could be Trousseau, but it was really good. Um, that sounds yummy. 
So since it's 8.30 in the morning here in Berlin, I'm already like looking forward to my glass of red I might have in a couple of hours. Um, but, but now we're finally arrived at the wine topic. So you, you, make, you made wine like the centerpiece of your life, so to speak. You, you are the publisher of probably the, the first and even also the most prominent natural wine magazines, Pipette. You wrote your novel with like the patnat word on the cover and also many juicy stories inside. You're making your own wines. Um, you're probably even helping, helping your husband um, with his wines. You're, you're working in the restaurant with wines. Um, how did that happen? Why is natural wine for you such a defining thing for your life, let's say, in the last decade probably even? Well, I think at first when you get interested in wine, it's this, for me, for like as someone who really loves language and politics and culture it's this like open you just there's so much to learn and i'm i was like i have to learn it all like i had to i wanted to see all the wine regions and um i started going to europe and wine regions in europe are really amazing i think you know i, I know you've been spending a little bit of time in sicily um yeah the way winemakers live is so amazing and in europe they all have these old old stories um and like like families going back generations i just got pulled in and um yeah like australia is different new world winemaking is totally different almost nobody comes from that background and so they had to study it or learn it on their own. And it's just kind of, um, you never know what the year will bring. And that's really interesting. So 2021, because of La Nina, as I mentioned, um, so our vintage was in March because of the opposite weather. Um, it was the best vintage in like Australian history. Uh, most and the best, it was great, it was amazing. So that was pretty thrilling and we're hoping for another one. Um, but you just don't know, like you sort of start to get a sense of what it will be like about five months before harvest and then harvest comes and you see what's out there. So it's endlessly exciting. And now I'm kind of getting more into the viticulture side of things now that we have young vines on the farm. But um, I just love it. I can't imagine life without wine. Yeah, well, me neither. Uh, and you're right, it's a very exciting topic and it's a very exciting world. And I believe especially the natural side of, of winemaking and wine drinking is like even more exciting for, for many, many reasons. Um, what I, I'm wondering, natural wine has become such a thing, at least in, in big international cities, let's say over the course of the last five years. So I, I believe I had my first like, encounter with natural wine maybe around 2014 in Paris and when I went back to Berlin it was like not a thing at all and like over the course of the last two years like bars are popping up selling natural wines more importers are coming to town but already like more and more people drinking it and like business models like come up like that feel rather like, like online startups that sell natural wine and to me this is already a little bit I would say not too much, but there is this feeling of, you know, this like really great indie rock band and you are among the chosen few 
who who are able like to enjoy this band and suddenly they became like this stadium rock band because they had like a a great hit and, and then you stop loving your former favorite band and i wonder if if you believe if natural wine is on a path to something like that how, how do you how do you see that is it great that more and more people like it even if they maybe don't care about it as much or is that even a problem for the whole movement yeah as you say natural wine started out as a little bit of a whispering culture and there was a definite if you know you know kind of vibe um which is not necessarily a super kind inviting sort of vibe and then i do not know what happened probably raw wine fair has something to do with it but there was a proliferation of, of natural wine businesses around the world um, from small towns in the united states to small towns in canada um, you know, like Iceland, <laughs> um, Dublin, uh, Kiev. I mean, I could go on and um, people making natural wine way off the beaten track, Scandinavia, Japan, Mexico. Um, it's incredible. But I think um, the kind of question you bring up is more of a moral question. Has natural wine kind of outgrown itself or gotten too big for its breaches. There's lots of idioms we could use. And it, it is possible because, um, but maybe I think what happened in 2020 was really a good reckoning. And I, I would say part of it had to do with, I think, Well, I'm just going to stick to talking about a specific case, actually, which was Valentina Pasolacqua. And um, that was a, a Puglian winemaker. So Puglia in the, um, the heel, yeah, of Italy. So a region known for um, labor problems mm -hmm. in the first place, mostly, I think, related to tomatoes. Um, underpaying workers, a lot of them being immigrants from Northern Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa. So obviously like not fully legal. And essentially Valentina Pasolacqua was, you know, riding this wave of popularity. Um, her wines seemed like they were everywhere. And to me, as someone coming from the, if you know, you know, culture, it sort of was a red flag. I was like, this feels like it just blossomed out of nowhere and how can she make that much wine and be ethical and mm. natural and i was like well it's obvious to me she's not she's not the only winemaker if she's making that much so mm. already it gives a sense of like mass production and um i just had a weird vibe about it but you know her website says she was biodynamic i've also never tried her wines mm. still to this day And then it came out that um, first her father was essentially um, arrested for being kind of like a, an overlord of um, a scheme where laborers were underpaid and treated really poorly. And probably they were also undocumented. Um, Capolorato, I think is the exact word in Italian. And then she denied involvement and then it became sort of clear that she was involved. And there was a whole thing that happened on Instagram. Another wine journalist kind of fished her out. People attacked her because that wine journalist is also an importer and it was a bit of a nasty thing, but mm. it was really, really beneficial 
because it um, made wine importers have to start to declare what their policies are about labor and then have to ask their producers to state that. And I really think that's good. Um, there, there's, there, there's lots of gray areas, especially when it comes to natural wine, but there should be some clarity about workers being paid well and according to like international standards. And in, a, in, a, in another sense, we should have a sort of healthy skepticism about people that might want to ride that wave of natural wine popularity and, and marketing. Um, healthy skepticism is good. There's no international cert certification for natural wine. It's always been based on people visiting and vouching for those people, having relationships, and um, maybe a certification would not be such a bad thing if it was done the right way. I don't know. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, it's a tricky topic. Well, I read about like the certification they came up in France with, but that's again, it's just France. And I believe it's also not like overall accepted there. Um, yeah. Oh, it never will be. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Natural winemakers in France hate paperwork. Yeah, probably for good reasons. Um, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, as a, as a movement that was like, also basically born out of the idea to not have any regulations to then finally come up with regulations only to protect the the punk rock idea from the first days it also seems like kind of like not the organic way um to go but but i also fully agree that to a certain extent importers consumers and restaurateurs need to know um what they are selling and what they are drinking um, but maybe it's also exactly right to, to leave it then to the importers and to the customers to do their homeware work and be responsible drinkers, be responsible um, restaurateurs and try to get in touch with the people you work with, with the producers. And I think that's the beauty uh, of the whole thing. And I guess by that, like, people will be detected who are not doing it the right way. So that, that would be my hope for now um that there's around that topic there is like a, a side topic of that one which i also thought about a bit in recent weeks because it was like harvest time in germany like two two three months ago like depending on where you are and that was another thing that felt kind of odd over the course of the last two years because also you in your book you describe in very blunt ways what it means to do harvest for a winemaker, it's not something very romantic. It's like very hard work and it's basically a very crucial and delicate moment for the winemaker family. And still like, from what I see like in my circle of friends and also obviously on Instagram, over the course of the last two years, so many young people from big cities mm -hmm. went to, to help for the harvest but mostly like with the idea to be like on the quest for something meaningful for their own life and only see it like some kind of as some kind of adventure trip and i don't think all of them are seeing like the hard labor aspect and i wonder if you have any opinion on that like would you welcome everyone to help at the harvest um, mm. or would you like look for people who actually do have an understanding of what harvesting means uh, on the labor level, but also like on the 
um, business level for the winemaker. Well, there's nothing worse than a harvest intern who's just on their phone half the time, Instagramming, mm. and then not really working. Um, look, I think it's really good for people to have some kind of experience, but also if you don't have um, concrete skills, you're sort of imposing on the family a little bit. So just keep that in mind. And yeah, I mean, I was pretty much like that when I first, when I did Harvest at Domain Moss, which is the subject of a chapter in my book, I could not keep up, honestly. I was totally destroyed by like the, the schedule. Um, but I, I'm still kind of, like that like i that's why i make such a small amount of wine i can't i don't know i just can't like my husband and his assistant winemaker they will go to bed at two and wake up at 6 30 to go to the vineyard for like a week in a row and i'm just like oh my god that is intense um but yeah the i mean you brought up people kind of coming up from the city to do harvest internships and stuff and i feel like i was dismissive of that at first but the other thing is that it just makes it more fun for us also and we do we do appreciate that like you know before the pandemic it was so international during vintage mm -hmm. and it's just fun so maybe they maybe the people who come can't drive the forklift and they don't know how to do punch downs but mm -hmm. They wash buckets and they pick grapes and it's good company. Maybe they cook. So there's a like a family kind of environment that's really amazing also. Um, and you do want that. But if you're gonna go work harvest, like show up with the right equipment, the right shoes, and be prepared to like really work because it's such a busy time as yeah. well. Um, so but I mean, the other thing I, I feel like I see is that people just, I've seen so many people ditch city life and become winemakers in recent years. I feel like there's so many new labels starting out. The first wave of natural wine was people whose families kind of had been making wine for a little while and they wanted to try a different way. And now it just seems like labels starting out of nowhere, finding organic vineyards or converting them which yeah. is really exciting. I mean, I guess anybody can do it if you can afford the equipment it's, yeah. and the great. Yeah. What, what do you think is like, I mean, what you describe is like people leaving cities to, to make wine or others start farming or do whatever, but like essentially escaping the urban landscape to, to live on the countryside. And this is also something you describe in your book. I mean, you kind of always lived in big cities, like you, you went from New York to Paris, um, and, and now you're basically ended up, I mean, I haven't been there, but the way you describe it, it's pretty much the middle of nowhere. And, um, but you also describe that you do have this longing for both aspects. You miss big city life and culture and theater and bars, but you also like are so drawn to to countryside and the sound of the birds. And I know, including myself, so many of us who are torn between these two extremes. Um, is there any answer to, to find a solution for that that makes you then really happy with where you are? 
Yeah, we always joke that we wish we could just like pick up our farm and put it outside Melbourne, which is a much more exciting city. Like Melbourne is kind of like Australia's Brooklyn in some ways. It has like amazing art gallery. You can walk around. It's very walkable, it's very multicultural. Um, we have we have Adelaide, which is um, I don't know if I'd call it a city. It's a town. <laughs> yeah, like it. Um, no, there's no reconciling it. It'll always be uh, a challenge. But I do feel that once I got the taste of country life, there was no going back. Mm. And that was that was another realization for me. Um, and it's kind of described in the book. Like I, I don't think this is even in the book, but I remember when I went back to Europe around the time that you and I met um, and I was traveling in, in, I was in Madrid for um, like a pop-up mm -hmm. and also to visit a winemaker for a pipette. And I went to this park near where I was staying and there were olive trees and I just started like harvesting them and I tried to brine them. Like I wanted to make something, I wanted mm -hmm. to harvest and make something because I had gotten this little taste of it. And mm. I, yeah, I can't really imagine not doing that. I can't imagine not growing food and having an herb garden, um, not drinking like sp fresh spring water. Mm. So you do, but um, no, I definitely miss culture. I don't know how I'll ever reconcile that, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, maybe once we are able to travel more freely again, there will be like frequent city trips within Australia or even like beyond. So, and by that you can like sprinkle this flavor of like culture and everything that's missing. Um, yeah. Back on top of it. Well, and so many of the other winemakers in this area, I think feel the same way I do. And there's a little bit of solidarity in that. Like, and my husband once said to me, he was like, you know, I wasn't born on a farm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay, it's fine. I get it. Like, cause he loves opera. Mm. And he would love to like patronize the opera regularly. Um, but that's just not the reality. And, you know, he made a choice, which was to be a, a farmer. And I, I think a lot of other winemakers around us feel like that. People are extremely well-read, like amazing taste in music, people that used to own restaurants in cities or whatever. And so um, we're definitely not, alone um but we're gonna go to europe um i think in like june or july and like hang out in Italy. yeah That's yeah um I, I want like to talk like maybe as the last topic a little bit about pipette so um and this is also like to maybe even share this anecdote the way we met because i remember like i kind of like read about tear and then like it was like prior to the first edition of Pipette, which was then a magazine you started to do by yourself after Terra stopped. Uh, and I had like a little wine shop 10 years ago and I was publishing a print magazine and I saw like these posts online, someone doing a print magazine about natural wine. And I was like, shit, that should have been my idea. Uh, and then I saw you posting from Berlin and I remember I just like basically texted you on Instagram and said, hey, we have yeah. to talk. And um, be because I believe it's such a great idea and you um, published like 10 editions of Pipette and now decided to 
to stop doing it. So the, the 10th um, issue that was like released, I believe six weeks ago, will be the last issue of Pipette for now at least. Why did you decide to stop a, at least from the outside successful publication, especially in a moment during natural wine has its momentum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, no, I love that you were part of it from the, from the beginning. Also, you you helped, you looked at the design a little bit, which Remember. was great. Now yeah. you've written for the magazine. Um, maybe you should be the next editor. No. <laughs> see, see, it's a lot of work. Um, I stopped it because of where I'm at right now in my life. And I'm, I'm a mother and, you know, my child won't be in school really for like three more years. And this is the time to really form a family and have a relationship with her that makes us all happy. And I saw how, you know, like me needing time to work on the magazine essentially meant that she needed to go to daycare and um that's fine and that's a very normal thing for a family but i saw how that was also making it difficult for us to establish routines as a family and um have her kind of part of our lives at the farm mm -hmm. so i had to give up something i think and also since the pandemic um Pipette has been more like armchair journalism for me. I, or I've been visiting winemakers around here in South Australia and writing about them, which is amazing. But it's less of what I originally imagined, which was like a vehicle for me to kind of write about the winemakers I admired and also have other people do that and kind of represent the best of natural wine in every single issue. And it's, it's definitely been a struggle to create content of that quality since the, the, the pandemic started. And I don't think the pandemic is quite going away yet. And um, I just, at some point when you have a small business, you have this question of, do I continue doing everything? Like everything, or is there some way I can outsource the work? And it's been really hard. Like I, I can't find anyone that can I can outsource the yeah. work to the stuff that I don't particularly want to do. So I continue doing all of it. And that's at some point, do I want to keep doing that? Maybe not. Um, I might, yeah, I might not like to be so tied to my computer yeah. in that way. I, I like creative work ultimately. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd like to see if I can follow up this book with another one, but I need to kind of clear the, the headspace yeah. a little bit. Um, cause it's constant when you're, it comes out every four months, which probably seems like a lot of time, but I've, I used to try to have like a two week break between issues. And then I just gave up on that because there was always like some article in the works and always orders mm -hmm. to be processed. Um, so I don't know. It was like the greatest thrill of my career to bring out 10 issues. It was just so incredible to see each one and then to see it really resonate with people around the world. And I just feel like it's cool. It's totally cool to stop while the going is good. Um, I, everyone asks me what's going to be next, and I've definitely thought of some things. I'm not kind of ready to go in any direction, um, but 
maybe I will pick it up in a year. And like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind doing like an encore issue, like mm. a really, really good solid, like in 2023 encore edition, and then maybe take it digital, maybe a podcast. Don't mm. know. So we will definitely all stay tuned. But um, I mean, as you just described, I also like met many people who, who loved reading the stories. Uh, and certainly over the course of the last two years, and I believe this is also something like you addressed in one of your last editorials, that while we were all not, all not being able to travel, at least the stories in the magazines allowed us to travel while reading the mm -hmm. stories and go like, at least mentally to the places we miss or long for to see. And I think that was like a part like from the great journalism that Pipette was known for, which is also nothing you should take granted for an independent publication. Um, there was the, the beauty in, in this like travel aspect while we were kind of all locked down at home. So thanks for doing that. And um, fingers crossed for everything else that, um, that will follow um, since you already had a glass of wine and I think it's like close to six, seven in the evening in Australia right now. What, what will happen um, in the next couple of hours? Will there be home cooked dinners, more wine or just basically family life? And there will be home cooked dinners and more wine because when you live on a farm, you cannot get food delivered. So you cook right. every single meal. <laughs> Another reality of farm life. Um, but that's cool. We'll probably make something simple. And I don't know, it's kind of like warm. It's still daylight. So we'll probably just hang out outside for a little bit. I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> I mean, I can hang out outside now, but it's like probably, I don't know close to zero degrees Celsius here, so it's not the best. It's already that cold. Oh gosh. Well, it's almost December. So yeah. Um, yeah, I know. But yeah, winter in Europe is intense, but here in winter it rains the whole time, which is, it's like a different kind of winter. And sometimes I sort of miss the like biting cold, like windy snow of the northern hemisphere i don't know why yeah no i also <laughs> definitely prefer cold to rain so at least for that i don't envy your current lifestyle no um, th thanks for taking your time um it's has been good to see you it also has been good to read your book uh and i hope like our conversation like um yeah made people curious to learn more about what it actually means to move from Brooklyn to the Australian countryside to become a winemaker and a wife and a mom. So yeah. everyone should be encouraged to, uh, to read about that because again, I believe it's a very beautifully written book. Um, and I hope we see each other soon, maybe not on my podcast, but then in real life in Europe in summer. Yeah, I think it might be, might be soon, which will be really, really great. We'll keep in touch about, travel and and so on and um thanks so much this has been really fun i always love chatting with you about writing and, and natural wine and stuff and um yeah the book's out and the probably the best way is amazon like the us mm. amazon website i know he's the you know that's the big bad guy but they have the book and they can ship it so that's where to find it. <laughs> yeah, I believe people for once can 
can deal with the big bad guy and then have it with a bottle of wine from a very small independent producer and balance. Yeah. And did you have some of my wine at some point? Or I had some of your wines, I believe, when we once met in Paris for the launch of one of the um, oh yeah okay that issues at the Cadore, I believe. There, I had the Sangiovese, maybe. Is that possible? Yeah, yeah. That was my first vintage. Yeah, yeah. cool. I I, I love drinking it, and I still remember like the the color. It was like so intensely red. Yeah. But you also do have an importer in Berlin right now, right? Yeah. Well, it's, um, he's in Austria, but we'll, we'll send a little bit more of my wine this year, like slightly larger volumes, hopefully. Nice. So, so, so for our listeners, what's the name of your wine? I mean, I know it, but like maybe. Oh, yeah, sorry. My label is called Persephone, Persephone Wines. Persephone was the um, Greek goddess. So she was the daughter of Demeter, who was the Greek goddess of agriculture. And Persephone was persuaded down into the underworld by Hades, and then she was trapped there. And her mother Demeter was so distraught by this that she made it eternal winter. And um, all the crops died and she had to teach the farmers how to sow wheat so that they could survive this eternal winter. And finally, um, Zeus, who was actually uh, Persephone's father, he said, we can't do this anymore. We need, sun we need sunshine. And they all made a deal. So now essentially Persephone comes up for spring and summer and all the things bloom and blossom. And then she goes back down into the underworld and her mother Demeter is sad again. So there's fall and winter. Which I believe is a great story to, to have for wine. So, um... There is always like some some bigger story behind the things you do. I'm getting the impression. So um, yeah, it was good to see you, and um, I hope to see you soon in real life. Yeah, sounds great. You are listening to Staff Meal, the world's first podcast about staff meals.